demons, Beelzebub, the unpardonable sin. Welcome to Creekside this morning. <laughs> I figured uh, let's do like let's do church light or gospel light or something. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. The nice thing about as you as you go through the Bible. Uh, and, and you go through a book like we're going through the Gospel of Mark, you get to hit all these hot topics, and uh, you, you really can't just slide over them and not deal with them. And so we're going to do a little bit of a flyby on a few things today, really where, where Jesus begins to draw some lines in the sand, some dividing lines for people as he's talking to them. And he, you probably, some of you will be thinking, well... I can probably check out right about now or maybe go get coffee or maybe head out. But I really think there'll be some relevant things. At least for every one of us, there'll be something I think where the Lord would want to challenge us and definitely speak to us. Uh, if you're a guest today, I want to personally welcome you. Thank you for coming and invite you to fill out a connection sleep, slip and uh, let us know that you were here so we can just send you a note of appreciation. But what we're doing, we're in the middle of the, uh, actually not in the middle, we're still at the first few chapters of studying through the gospel of Mark, just kind of taking this journey with Jesus, really wanting to know him better and how to live for him better. We've been seeing so far, Jesus's message is clear. It's about the gospel. The gospel means good news, and it's the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do, that he himself came to this earth to establish a new kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. And like wherever you have a kingdom, there has to be a king reigning, and Jesus came as that king. Luke 17, 21 tells us that, that these people were asking, Jesus, where's the kingdom of God? We don't see it. And he says, look around, because wherever his presence is, wherever it indwells, that's where the kingdom of God is, because he's the king. And so wherever, whoever here today has Jesus in them, you are part of the kingdom of God. And so that's really the message of what Mark is about. Now, as we talk about these things, one of the things you see, Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark, we see him continually being confronted by evil spirits and demonic beings, releasing people from demonic activity, and, and he'll say to these people a lot of times, to say, now you've been delivered, now go, and don't, don't say anything. And I always find that interesting, like, like, Jesus, I mean, this is like free PR, man. This is great marketing. Send these guys Tell them what they've done. But uh, if you understand the reason Jesus tells him don't really say anything, it's because he, he, he's, he's concerned about the message, but he's just as concerned about the messenger. And in those days, there were so many fruitcake crazy people that he says, you know what? I don't necessarily want them speaking for me at this time in my ministry. And isn't that really even true for today? I think one of the things that probably just, just kind of grates on me is, you know, whenever we have one of these mass shootings, you know, whether it's at McDonald's or a theater or sometimes even at a school, it's amazing how often what's played up is the, these people have some, obviously, some mental illness. But what do they almost always say? Ah, oh, God made me do it. I heard a voice from God. Or someone bombs an abortion clinic. Well, God told me to do it. And I just want to tell you, I think you know, God would never tell anybody to do that. God is never going to destroy life for a principle. Not, not in this age, not in this era. A whole other talk would be why he did it in the Old Testament. But we never see that taking place in the New Testament. 
And that bothers me because it, you know, it really does. It just kind of, kind of lumps all Christians together because it, you know, it really makes us kind of look a little off. And, and that bothers me. So today we're going to see Jesus doing some, some unique things and how he confronts the forces of darkness. Because loved ones, you can never, never forget that we do have an enemy of our soul that is at work. And we'll kind of work through a little bit of that today. So we're going to see Jesus establish some dividing lines and lines of demarcation in some relationships. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. We really have kind of three major stories taking place uh, in this same sequence of time, in this sequence of time. So I'm just going to walk you through each one of them. So Jesus has chosen his 12 apostles and they've started the work of the ministry. And Jesus decides now to go home, probably in Capernaum, kind of his home base now for his ministry. So we pick it up there in uh, Mark 3, verse 20. It says, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. That always happens wherever Jesus went. So that he was with his disciples were not even, it says there were so many people there that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Verse 21 says, and when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him because they said, he's out of his mind. Have you ever had family members say that about you? That's an interesting thing. His family, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And even his family isn't getting it. There's something interesting taking place here because we'll see here toward the end, at the end of this chapter that Mary, his mother was there and his brothers were there. And they're really literally beginning to think, man, he's losing it. The dude, our son, our half-brother, Jesus, he's deranged. And literally the idea there, take charge of him in the Greek language, it's used for arresting someone, forcibly seizing them and grabbing them and taking them away from a situation. So his family, you got to see, is they're not coming to rally around him, they're coming to round him up. Let's get him away from here. Some of us maybe have been involved in interventions with somebody you love and what's the idea of that? It's really an intervention takes place with somebody who gets to this place where they either can't or won't take care of themselves and take steps to help themselves because they're probably spiraling downward, usually in some form of addiction. And so this is almost like a precursor. This is almost like this family family, uh, intervention that they're coming and they're saying, man, we, we got to take Jesus back. And like any good mama, she's probably thinking, I'll get him home because he's not eating. And, and I'm going to feed him a nice little meal and we'll get him into this healthy environment. But Jesus just, he keeps going. Because he understands, he knows they really don't get it. They don't understand yet who he is and what his mission is about. So the disciples, they're on this ministry trip. Remember, remember in John chapter 4, early in Jesus' ministry too? He's already called his followers. And this is interesting because, see, nobody really got who Jesus was probably for a, a good season of time, even though they were following him. John chapter 4, they're going through this town of Samaria, and they sit at this well, and Jesus, it literally says, this is his humanity coming out. He says, I'm tired. The brothers say, the disciples say, well, we're going to go into town, Jesus, and we're going to get some McNuggets and a little filet of fish and some fries and some goodies. And so they go into town, and Jesus stays there, and he ministers to this woman, and he, and he speaks 
speaks to her heart to the place where she literally goes into town and tells the whole town about, I've met the Messiah, I've met a prophet who knows everything about me, and they come running out. Well, before they get there, the disciples come back, and they've got their bags of goodies, and they're eating, and they say, Rabbi, it's time to eat. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, no, no, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, and I'm hungry, but my will, my food is to do the will of the Father. And then he waits for, these, for this whole town to come out and he continues to minister to them. It's just so interesting to me that it's like, and, and sometimes ministry or even there's other things that if you have a passion for, you know, food becomes really secondary when you're in the throes of it. And so it isn't like Jesus didn't, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't really concerned about eating. And I think there's just a quick principle that for some of us, that when you really come to Jesus, Jeremiah said, if you're, if you're reading, following the Bible plan, Jeremiah said, chapter 15 this week, he said, thy words did I find and I ate them and they become the joy of my life because I'm of your name. And there's something about the life of Jesus when you really begin to engage, so many other things become secondary. See, you you begin to understand that, man, I want to go on this vacation, this big vacation, and you go on it, and you charge everything up, and then you come back, and you go, oh, wow, wasn't that great? I mean, now i got to pay it off for the next seven months, so that two weeks was really hard. Or you get that new car, somebody bangs into it, oh, my gosh. And you begin to say, that's really not about a car, or you get this new thing, or that new toy, or a special relationship that doesn't work. Pretty soon you just realize, it's not about things. It says, Jesus said, ultimately it becomes about pleasing him with your life in every way, every day. And we look for all of these other things to satisfy us. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to please him. So, you know, the question is, is why doesn't this compute? Why isn't this registering with his brothers and his mother of all people? Well, we're going to see in probably in, a, in about a month or so, we're going to see in Mark chapter 6 where what's taking place here, and it can even happen, I'll talk about this because it can even happen with every one of us in this room. We see a classic case of familiarity. Oh, it's just Jesus. You know Jesus. Oh, he's a great kid. He was a good kid, a good boy growing up, but it's just Jesus, and we grew up with him. And some of us here, we've grown up with him, and he's, well, he's just, Jesus. You know, he's the carpenter. Fixed our chairs, reconfigured our doors, did all of these things. So they don't see him as anything more than Jesus. And now they see him as this guy with a Messiah complex. He's becoming unhinged. To the point where he's just so crowded with people, him and his disciples aren't even eating. And you, you, you know, if, if you, we've talked about this a number of times. The Gospel of Luke talks about almost every time you see Jesus coming or going or being with people, what's he doing? He's eating. But it is interesting to note even the times that he doesn't eat. Because if, you, if you're a parent, what is one of the first things you look at with your kids if they're sick or something's going on? How are they eating? 
How come they're not eating? I mean, usually they're a human garbage disposal or vacuum cleaner, but they're not eating. What does a doctor say when you go and see him if you've got some issues? How are you eating? How's your appetite? What are you eating? And so this is one of the reasons it becomes a sign for these people that, that Mark seems to note it very clearly that they're so busy, there's so, much, so many things happening. He's talking about being this Messiah, this God. Uh-oh, he's losing it. We, we, we gotta go in, we gotta encircle him and help him. And you say, well, that, that's not that big a deal. Well, let's look at some other possibilities. What are some other things happening in Jesus' life that would lead them to question his literal sanity? Well, first, we see it here. We'll see in just a minute, where, and we've already seen it, where he's always taking on the religious leaders of the day. He's rubbing this new, this brand new relationship with God in their face as he's talking about this new kingdom that's coming. So these religious leaders that we're going to see in a minute, he's, he's cutting into their crowd. They're following their livelihood. These guys are serious. They don't see him as the Messiah. These were power brokers of the religious realm. You don't, you don't snub your face, at the, your, your, your nose at these guys. They're powerful people. They can do damage to you. So Jesus is snubbing this thing in our life, the very value of safety that we all want to embrace. People that are clothed in their right mind, they don't just snub authority. People that could hurt them. So the family's picking up on that. How about this? Jesus, growing up, had this respectable business, grew up in the family business, probably learned carpentry from his, his daddy, Joseph. Could have taken over the business because we don't hear much of Joseph after Jesus is about 12, and it's very possible that he died early in his age. So he's taking over the family business. But no, he charts off on his own and starts talking about Son of God, Messiah stuff, leaves the family business. And he's leaving the very, the very value that we, we adhere to so closely, which is simply security in life. Having, keeping, being secure, knowing where that next paycheck is. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna go out there. I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a home, but I've got this mission. Now you can begin to piece together why his family is so concerned and what's really bad is, see, in those days, there were hundreds of messiahs. If you read the, the writings of Josephus, who was a secular historian, he'll tell us that literally there were people all over the place claiming to be the messiah, claiming to be God, even like we see today sometimes. So Jesus just becomes another part to a lot of those people of this lunatic fringe. So they want to get him. They want to pull him back out of his craziness. They want to they take him home. Okay, what does that mean for me today, PT? What, is, what, what, what can I glean from that? Well, I think probably, how often do we think of people who, who God does something, Jesus comes into their life and radically begins to change, change them. 
And we begin to kind of look down at them. Fanatics. Radical people. Because they start to talk differently. They start to live differently. They don't go to the same places they used to go to. And maybe we have friends like that, or maybe friends call us that. That's a good thing, loved ones. I'm not talking about being religiously weird. I'm not talking about being, you know, puritanical as much as, but, but there's something where people notice this definitive changes in your life. Oh, you're just a, just a radical Christian now. Yeah, that's, that's who I want to be. And sometimes we can really, we can look down on those people. And see, there's, for some people, the message of life, excuse me, the, the message of Jesus' life, it begins to supersede their own personal life and plans. I've seen this happen, literally. Where a student, a young person, sometimes even an adult who changes careers, say, I just feel God calling me to the ministry. Or I just have this desire, I want to be involved in ministry. I've seen young people where they've had opportunities at prestigious colleges just for great degrees that would give them wonderful income and, and future. And all of a sudden, they're going to give up this prestigious college and go to their mama and daddy or one or the other or both of them and say, I think Jesus is calling me to this. And what's the first question? Are you kidding me? You're going to give up your future? You're going to give up the financial potential earnings that you could get? You're kidding me. You're crazy. We got to save this kid. Some of us aren't laughing because it's true. And see, we can get into that whole thing too where we just really don't see Jesus for who he is, especially in the lives of other people. The greatest future we'll have is not because you make a lot of money, and you know I'm not against that. But the greatest future is when you do what Jesus says and when you follow his leading. See, these people, they're thinking, oh, Jesus, man, you're talking too much and you're taking risks that no one should take. Only someone losing it could allow that to happen. But see, Jesus, he's, he's, he's picking up all this. But he keeps going. Verse 22 says this, and the teachers of the law, some of your Bibles will say scribes. These were kind of the religious intelligentsia of the day. They came down from Jerusalem to Capernaum because remember, these guys now are following him everywhere he goes. And what do they say? First, he's accused of being deranged by his family. Now they're saying this, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And he's driving out demons. It's interesting. Again, these are the intelligent school teachers of the law and they're accusing Jesus really of two things ultimately of being demon-possessed, of being evil, and then being in cahoots with the devil himself. Uh, There's many names for the devil, many names, because each one of them represents and speaks of and about his character. One of them here is Beelzebub. They call him, they use that term. He's a Beelzebub, and they would have understood this because see, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years prior to this, in ancient, the ancient Canaanite civilization, they had a deity called Baal. 
You can read about them in 1 Kings 18. They're the prophets of Baal. Remember when they took on Elijah and Elijah had to call down fire from heaven to show who the real God was. 2 Kings chapter 1, it talks about Baal. Now the word there, Baal comes from two words, Baal. And Baal means Lord. And Zabal means house or dwelling. So this, this term could literally be translated master of the house. And it really is from the Old Testament, but it really is a representation of the devil, Satan, Lucifer, and his kingdom. Now, the name also means literally Lord of the Flies. How would you like to have that for your title? Hi, I'm Terry, and I am Lord of the Flies. Now, the reason I always find this funny and, and is because, and it's really not funny about when it comes to Satan, because what do flies do? besides fly? Where do they pester? Where do they hang? If, uh, what, what, food, yeah? Skabala. if some of you have heard that term, skabala. That's a Greek word for um, excrement. How's that for a good way to put it? And this is what's really important, is because see, Beelzebub, the work of the enemy, his demonic forces, Satan himself, literally, they're Lord of the flies, the flies who just pester and hang around the crap of people's lives. And wherever you have that, 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 that junk, that skabala, that excrement, that crap, that's where the enemy is going to continually land. And he's going to use that. So see, the, 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 the enemy now is kind of landing in this area as the scribes are uh, accusing him. And Jesus, remember in chapter one of Mark, he casts out a demon. And since he cast out that demon of that one man, he's been healing people. And now Luke, in a parallel passage to this passage, tells us that people are sitting there listening to this. Dr. Luke gives a little more uh, uh, definition and detail in his gospel. And he says literally that the people, they're rendering a verdict in their hearts as they're watching Jesus and they're listening to these religious leaders. Wow, is Jesus good or is he evil? Is, Is he good? is he evil? And it says literally, Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, it's really important to remember, loved ones, is Jesus knows your thoughts. Did you know that as you're sitting here today, every day, he is listening. He knows what you're thinking. He he knows every thought that we have. And sometimes it's pretty important to be reminded of that truth. And Jesus is talking to them and literally he turns and he looks to them and he he says, I know what you're thinking. You're wondering if I'm good or evil, whether I work for the God of heaven or the Lord of this underworld. Now notice these scribes and these religious leaders, they never denied Jesus' power to perform miracles, to do great things. What they're doing now is rather than attributing this power to the God from which he came, they're attributing it to the devil and they're accusing Jesus of being in the league, being in cahoots, being part of this demonic kingdom. So what does Jesus do? What's his response? Well, it's pretty logical. He says, listen guys, this, this, it, it doesn't make any sense for you to think that I'm part of that because what good would it do if I cast out a demon using evil power? What's the point? Why would a servant of Satan cast out somebody or something, a servant of Satan? That would be like friendly fire in the U.S. military. 
We don't take out, we don't, we don't take out our own. We don't remove our own. Why would the devil cast out his own demons? And Jesus pointed it out when he said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. I mean, remember our civil war. That was almost the breaking point of the United States. Fortunately, we had a statesman who could come in and lead us through it. And he made the statement too, coming from the Bible, united we stand, divided we fall. And Lincoln, President Lincoln, understood the gravity of what was taking place in that civil war. And and Jesus is really saying the same thing. Are you kidding me? It's totally illogical to believe that Satan would empower me, Jesus, to free those who were bound by Satan. So in verse 23, this is what he says. So Jesus called them and he spoke and and he spoke to them in parables. What's a parable? I'll talk about this a little more next week, what parables are. But they're basically, uh, in, in their essence, it's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning to be able to understand something of high kingdom principle. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. The only thing that keeps him going is is the freedom that God gives him, number one, and number two, that he keeps a united kingdom. Verse 27 says, in fact, No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless the first ties up the strong man. Who's the strong man? Well, that's Satan. He's strong. Then he can rob his house. And I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, all of them. Uh, But, big but here. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. For he is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, the thing I want you to see here is that Jesus really says, you know something? Uh, It would be silly of me to divide, if I was really of Satan's kingdom, to divide Satan's kingdom. That's not what I'm about. And then he goes on to say that no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Well, then he can rob his house. So Jesus is really showing us here. He says, I'm not doing the devil's work. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm doing everything against it. I'm going in. I'm tying up the strong man. I want to bind the devil and do away with his works. 1 John 3, 8 says this, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose. What? To destroy the devil's works works, and that's still his focus today. That's always been his focus. As you read through the Gospels, you'll never see Jesus do damage to anybody except the works of the enemy of our soul, the devil, and his demonic forces. And it's important to see that Jesus is stronger. Again, going back to this parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he says this, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. As I begin to move in your life and remove the demonic forces or the demonic influences by the simple finger of God, guess what? The kingdom of God has come to you. And that's exactly what has happened to every one of our lives that have responded to Jesus, loved ones. 
there's beginning to be this new kingdom that we live within and live for. And Jesus is saying, get this, I am stronger than Satan, demons, or any domain of darkness. See, remember, it's not yin and, Jesus and the devil aren't yin and yang and, you know, these opposite forces. The devil is created and rebelled against God. Jesus has never been created. He's God. So they're not like these two polar opposites just fighting against each other. I love this because Jesus says, listen, I just take you out by the finger of God. Now, there's nobody in this room that I could take out with my finger. As a matter of fact, there's probably very few of you I could take out with my arms and my hands. But Jesus says, I don't need my arm, I don't need my hand. I just need my finger. Boop. And that's what we never can forget is how strong Jesus is in these spiritual battles that we face. Every time we see Jesus dealing with a demonic possession, we're going to look at a classic one in Mark 5. What happens? They are dispelled and dismissed. As a matter of fact, what do they usually end up doing? They cry out, Son of God, have mercy on me. Why? Because they know who he is. I love that. They know who he is when nobody else does. And many today dismiss Satan and demonic. His demonic entourage is simply archaic, uh, a figment of people's imagination from a day gone by thought of the uneducated, but Jesus took Satan very seriously, and he says he considers him here a strong man, and he says he's got a kingdom. And those who are under his control and his domain need to be freed. Hear me, be, be really clear on this. I am not saying that everybody that's not a Christ follower is demon-possessed, okay? Very few people. I've never seen, if I have, I didn't know it, but I've never really seen anybody demon-possessed. And if I never see one, I'm good at that, you know? And, uh, you know, the question people always ask, well, man, can a Christian be demon-possessed? I don't know who would want to be, really, you know? I don't, I don't think they can be. I don't believe they can be unless they just totally open themselves up, and that's a whole other talk as well. But, but Jesus never diminishes this truth. Jesus is clear there are two kingdoms, and people are a part of one or the other. Jesus doesn't make theological debate about the existence of the devil or the nature of evil. Instead, he simply went about freeing people from its domain. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, I believe. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them publicly as he triumphed over them by the work on the cross. And because of that, we get to live in the power of the strongest man and be free from the power of the strong man. Satan is a defeated foe, but he is still wreaking havoc, isn't he? He's been defeated. We've won the war. It was won on the cross. But isn't it true that there are still battles that we have to face? And sometimes Christ followers forget this. They don't understand this. They think, well, if I follow Jesus, then all of those things should just kind of fall off and I should be delivered. You've been given the power to be delivered. But it is true, loved ones, there are always going to be ongoing battles in our lives till the day we die. What happened with Jesus? He, he comes and, and he gets baptized. The first thing he's done, literally thrown into the desert by the Holy Spirit, led out there, and he's facing the temptation of the enemy for 40 days. He's got to win that battle. He's got to win that war for you and I to show us that we can win it. 
That's at the beginning of his ministry. And then what happens at the very end of his ministry? You got it. The Battle of Gethsemane. What's he going to do? Is he going to go through with the cross or isn't he not? And he does. But, but did you see there's a war there? There's a battle. And loved ones, from the time you and I are born till the day we die, we are going to be in war, at war with the enemy of our soul, our flesh. The battle is won, but you still got to fight. If you read the book of Joshua, Joshua said, I mean, God said to Joshua, I'm taking you to the promised land. It's yours. Wherever your foot goes, you've got it. Oh, I like that. I'm going to go put my foot in Hawaii, you know, and Pebble Beach and all these other places. And Joshua's thinking, oh, man, we're going to the land of milk and honey. And it's got everything we could ever want. It's not the desert. But what does God say? Oh, and by the way, by, by the way, Josh, you're going to you're gonna have to fight. You're going to have to dispel the enemies of that land. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the whatever rights. You're, you're going to have to get rid of them. But, but I'm going to do it with you. And never forget, loved ones, it's the same for you and for me. See, we see hell breaking out all around us. And this is really, just besides praying for our students, I really want to pray for our world at our prayer and worship night. I mean, talk about war and violence in the Middle East and, 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 and Ukraine and human trafficking and disease that's taking place in Africa and the atrocities against humans and children. There is no other way to explain it other than there is this evil out there. Listen, people are evil, but it's because of what happened at the fall in the beginning. And it's been this way throughout history. It's not even so much that it's worse now. It's just the human condition throughout history. And we've got to be praying. That's how we begin to take hold of and defeat the strong arm or the, 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 the strong arm man. And we begin to go back in and plunder. Listen, it has to start with praying. Because other than that, what else can we do? We can send a few dollars here and there. But there are demonic forces taking place. And people go, oh, 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 pastor, okay, we're talking about demons and the devil. You really believe in a hell? Absolutely. There's so much in Christendom right now where people are saying, oh, I don't believe in hell. And, or, you know, God will never send anybody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go. Really. See, to me, if you understand the character of God, we say, oh, he's merciful. God is just. He's perfect. Do you think that a perfect, just God would go, oh, man, the Holocaust, that's a bummer. No. Do you know that grieves God's heart more than anybody's? Oh, man, the atrocities over in, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. Yeah, it'll play out. No, breaks God's heart. And, 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 and I don't, I, I'm not God, you're not God. We don't know why he doesn't intervene, but sometimes we think he should. And, and, and I don't know why he doesn't. But I do know this, the level playing field of eternity is heaven and hell. Because if I believe that God is perfect and just, he can't just go, 
It's all right. No. He has set up a system of justice that we don't understand. We may not always agree with it. A lot of people really don't like it, but he's the one that set it up. And he's God. You're not, and I'm not. Thank God. (laughs) But do you see what I'm saying? Hell really does become almost the great equalizer. And I don't say that like, yeah, ho, ho, good. As competitive as I am, I, I, I don't like the thought of it. But I just understand justice. And there has to be something for these people. So in this context, now Jesus goes and he talks about the eternal sin which will never be forgiven, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Is it true that inquiring minds want to know? What is it? What is the eternal, unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever wondered if you've committed it? Have you ever wondered if you could commit it? Have you ever wondered any of those things, some of you? Okay, well, let's, let's kind of talk about it here. The unforgivable sin is to look at Jesus because you've got to look at the context of where this is placed. The unforgivable sin has to do with looking at Jesus and seeing evil instead of good, seeing the devil instead of God. Let me just give you the essence of this sin. It's being wrong about Jesus. See, God comes in the flesh, and if he stands in front of you, Do you recognize him as God in the incarnate or do you reject him as these people were? See, Jesus warns them. Notice, he doesn't say anyone there had committed the sin, but he only notes the hopelessness of the condition of those who do. You have no condition. You have no eternal future that is good. So why would this be an eternal or unforgivable sin? Because when a person is unable to distinguish between good from evil, God from the devil, they will not repent. Matthew 3 talks about entrance into the kingdom of God comes through repentance. It is the pathway because you acknowledge God is God, what he's done, and who you are, a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. But if you don't acknowledge that, that you're, then you're unable and unwilling to receive the very God that came to give himself for you. And you reject the pathway into the kingdom of God. And when this attitude begins to harden and become permanent in your life, then one becomes guilty of the sin that can never be forgiven, which is simply rejecting and stiff-arming Jesus, who is the access to the Father. Gary Brashears, theologian at Western uh, Theological Seminary, put it this way, the unforgivable sin is refusing the calling of the Spirit. Anyone who feels the pull of the Spirit and refuses it remains in unforgiveness. However, if they respond in every sin, no matter how awful, and again, this is that this justice thing of God that we don't get. No matter how awful, is forgivable. 
That's Jesus' main point. Every sin can be forgiven. But if you refuse the way of forgiveness, there's no possibility of being forgiven. People do refuse the Spirit today. Now, let me say this. I believe this. Anyone who is worried about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin, you haven't done it. Uh, Many people that worry about this have asked. People who feared, they want to know, man, have I committed this, Pastor? And I said, no, just by virtue of being worried about it, you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. Much like these religious leaders here, you'd be convinced that Jesus is evil, that his religion brings evil, that his life brought evil to this world. And isn't it true that so many people even think that today? Or maybe you say, well, you know what? He's a great teacher, woo. But he's only a man. He ain't God. He didn't do anything for me. That attitude and that thought, literally, it would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, you go, oh, man, I think that today. Okay. Well, you're in it, but you haven't done it. When do I do it? When you continue to think that till the day you die. Because that means that your heart has hardened you to that place where you can never receive and respond to the life of Jesus. See, the unforgivable sin means your heart is so hard and it's so settled. It's a condition not due to, listen, hear me, not due to specific sins, but a sin in your heart that becomes so hard that you refuse to respond to the wooing of God's spirit in the life of Jesus. It's simply continually saying, I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need Jesus. And don't we see people do this all the time everywhere? I, I think that, you know, for, for some people, they go, hey, man, listen, spirituality, great with me. Just don't give me Jesus. Oh, man, I love karma, man. I just don't want the church in Jesus. Okay, you know, that sounds really sweet and nice and all that, but that's, that's, that's part of moving toward this unpardonable sin because all you're wanting is kind of this religion, spiritual thing, but it's really nothing except idolatry unless you have Jesus at the forefront. I've told you this before, but I think I'll unpack it just a little bit more. But I've told you the story about how I would sit at Portland First Church as a teenager with my friend Russ, and we would sit there. At the end of service, there'd be an altar call, and he'd be nudging me, come on, Terry, let's go up there. Let's respond. And literally, probably for a year, Russ and I would make Russ go to church with me because my parents made me go. And so I'd have somebody there with me. And and he's always, you know, this soft, tender heart. And, and every Sunday, my heart would get just a little harder because it was just easier for me to say, eh, you go, you go. Now listen, if, if, if uh, th- that was almost uh, 40 years ago, if I was still doing that today, I would not have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin, but I would just be continually getting harder uh, a harder hardness of heart that was continually moving toward me. And it really, this doesn't really get fulfilled until you die. Because on your deathbed, if you said, Jesus, I don't know, I, I, don't, I could be so stupid, but would you forgive me my sins? I, I, I want to respond now. Jesus says, okay. Do you understand that? This is an ongoing heart condition that will not respond to the grace that God gives you through Jesus. 
It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And it really doesn't happen until you've continued to say that until the day you die. Does it make sense to everybody? Because a lot of people really live in fear. Have I committed this? Could I commit it? Yeah, you could. People do it all the time today. But it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing hardness of the heart. Well, let's, let's conclude with, with, on, on this part. What's the bottom line for everybody? Listen, look at me. It's this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? A good man? A lunatic? Or the Lord of heaven and earth? Those are really your three options. If you've read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, he says you've got three options. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. I'm God. If I said that today and I had you thinking that I believed that, you would go, yeah. (laughs) Lunatic. Let's get the intervention going. And we got about 240 people right here that will do it. We're his family. You don't have that. He'd either, be a, he'd either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with some patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. There's a lot of voices out there saying a lot of things. Jesus will always bring it back, loved ones, to the bottom line for you and for me. Who do you say that I am? For a lot of, for for a couple years, his family thought he was deranged. The religious leaders thought he was of the devil. 2,000 years later, people have been following Jesus as the Lord of their life. Every one of us has to come to a conclusion. Just the last part says this, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. See, the family couldn't even get inside to him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And gentle Jesus, I love this about him. Hey, who are my mother and brothers? Well, Well, Jesus, I think they're right outside. No, 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 no. Who are my mothers and my brothers? And then he looked at those seating in a circle around him. I love it. I could just see Jesus. Because you know the guy's got to be intense. Don't ever get this idea that he was kind of this, had the feathered hair back and the beautiful complexion and had this kind of gone to glory look. I can just see him and he's going, who do you think my brothers and sisters are? And he says he begins to look around at him. Here, here, here. Here are my brothers and my mother. Whoever does the will, whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother. Amen. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. I just love him because you know what? 
He's so much stronger than we think he is. He's so much straightforward. He calls it like it is. It's interesting. At the the end of this encounter, his family arrives to take him home, and they're standing outside trying to get in. And they say, Jesus, guess what? They're here. And most of, oh, great, great. Yeah, send mama and my brothers in. I'd love to have them see me preach away. But Jesus says this shocking thing. Who who really are my mothers and my brothers? And then he looks at him. And see, it's shocking because family was such a high, has such a high value in the Jewish culture, much like in our Christian culture. This wasn't the way a good Jewish boy would treat his mother and brothers. Is Jesus renouncing family? Absolutely not. And I say this because it's funny, because I pay attention to mothers. I think mothers are great. But sometimes I go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You know, your boy is, you know, 30 or 18 and don't, you know, don't fawn over him like a little boy or they're, you know, they're little girls or they're young girls or they're adult girls, princess, oh, come on. You know, it's like, oh, whatever, I won't go there, but, um, <laughs> but, but, that, but that's, that's what a Jewish boy would expect from his mother, you know. And he says, "Uh uh-uh. This may seem kind of random that Jesus is talking about this family issue when it comes up. But what he's really trying to do is he's drawing another line in the sand for you and for me and from them and throughout Christendom. This line in the sand is he's declaring this, that the spiritual bond is deeper than genetics. It goes beyond biology and family blood to the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for this family, his family. See, loved ones here today, everybody in this room, you are either in one of two kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 is very clear that we start in the kingdom of darkness because we're born into it. And then it's only by the work and the love and the grace and our response to the life of Jesus Christ that it says he transfers, transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to his glorious kingdom of light. And he makes this statement. My brother, my sister, my mother are the ones who do my will. First, there's an implicit warning that needs to be heard. Do not assume that you are a Christian because you are related to somebody that is. He says, listen, I don't care what, who are my mom, or I, he cares, but I mean, he says, it isn't about blood and relationship. It's about doing what I've said to do. Jesus didn't guarantee to them that they were in the kingdom because they were related, just like it doesn't matter who you're related to. It matters who you're related to at one level, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you're in the family because you respond to the call of God and do his will. A lot of people for a lot of years, and they still think it today, oh, I'm a Christian, I was born in America. I mean, you know, home of the brave, land of the free, Christian nation. And you know my thoughts on that. I don't believe it for a minute. I believe we're blessed of God. But this is not a Christian nation. We are fortunate that we have Christ at the forefront in so many of our lives. 
But we are only a Christian nation if everybody was a Christian. We have a lot of good guiding Christian principles. And many people still assume that they're Christians because they were raised in a Christian home. Jesus right here challenges that thinking. You do not, you don't just default into being a Christian. God has no grandchildren. Only children. Second, by redefining family as those who do God's will, he's basically saying, you live God first, not family first. And I know that's really hard for a lot of people. Christians, I really believe this, they make their kids to be little gods. And everything of their life revolves around them instead of around Jesus, first and foremost. And I don't mean becoming religiously weird, but when we raise our kids, they literally have become idols, and we do it almost in the name of Christianity. Jesus said, I am first. Matter of fact, Jesus said it this way, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He is, listen, hear me. He's not diminishing our love for our kids. He's elevating our love for him and keeping those two things in perspective. This is what I know. Jesus first. I love my family, but I'm called to love Jesus first. Here's the wonderful thing. You know what happens? The more I love Jesus, the more I'm going to love Trina. The more I love Jesus, the more I'm going to love my boys. The more I love Jesus, the more I'm going to love you. Because that's how he set it up. The better I love Jesus, the better person I'm going to become if I do his will. Amen? Would you stand quietly with me and bow your heads as we close? <coughs> Let's close with prayer, if you would, please. It's very possible there are people here today that you're part of the family here. You feel like it's a cool place to be. It's got a wonderful vibe, but it encourages you, inspires you. But you're kind of like Jesus' family. You say, well, I, I, yeah, yeah, he's uh, checking them out. Or maybe you're kind of like a scribe that sits back and you've kind of broke everything down and now he's just a man. And I just want to encourage you today that you need to make a decision. I would pray that you would do it today, but I would sure never want to manipulate or force a decision. But I want to remind you, some way, sometime, you've got to make that decision. And maybe today's the day. Maybe you're at this place where you say, no, it's time. And I would encourage you to do just a couple things. Number one, on a connection slip, just fill it out and say, I'm, I'm committing my life to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of my life. And it happens by just acknowledging that, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Come into my life. And then you begin, you'll begin to learn and hear his voice and live for him. Maybe some of you are like his family too and you've put a lot of other things first besides his will. And maybe today you need to say, God, 
I've got some idols. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's this over here. Maybe it's this over there. And just say, Jesus, forgive me. I want to put you number one. He won't force his kingship. It's invited. And I would encourage you to do that today. 